content note. Today's episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains a lot of references to a painful level of bureaucracy, illness, death, and decaying bodily limbs in slightly more graphic detail than may be palatable to many listeners or readers. Yes. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us as we continue Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 31, Mrs. Danica. As you postulated last episode, Rue, this might be because Mr. Danica, or Dr. Danica, as his uh, title is, is no longer recognized as alive by the U.S. military. Well, it's not that the U.S. military doesn't recognize him as alive. It's that the people who are currently, the people who are currently administrating in the local area, they are just messed up. Yes. Yeah. So the idea of because he was on the flight list and they only saw two parachutes and there were four people on the flight list meant that two were alive and two were dead and it had to be Dr. Nika. Yep. <sighs> it just annoys me, actually. Just that kind of bureaucratical thing is. And, and keep in mind here. We don't have proof at the moment that this is the way it's going to go, but I think we're both fairly certain saying this is exactly the way it's going yeah, to it go. Yeah, it is. It's totally going to be the way it goes because, I'm sorry, he was literally right there. He was literally right there. And it was just, oh, but he's dead now. It's like, I'm here. No, but he's dead now. <sighs> There's so many things that... that, that the problem with this one, it reminds me of other settings where there's bureaucratic stuff like that. Like, Have you ever read The uh, Trial by Franz Kafka? Uh, no, not that I can recall. I think I, I avoided. Like that so, one, is, it's the only Kafka book I've read. So I'll put that out front because I do know it was, uh, it was um, released posthumously and he didn't quite finish it. And that's quite evident because the ending of the book, I think, is terrible. But... It basically is this man trapped in a bureaucratic hellhole. Yeah. See, the problem is for me that I, I see a lot of this. I see this in how admin in academic institutions occurs. I see this in healthcare. My God. Yeah. Mm. It, so it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to, to read about because you just, it's so tiring. It's like the, um, I don't know if you ever saw the Asterix as kids because we grew up in Germany and here it kind of, it's one of the things that you saw was Asterix um, back in the 80s, 90s. And um, there's one of the episodes which is Asterix uh, visiting the Romans, I think. I and do seem just, to remember, yeah, yeah about uh, you need this form, go here. Quite a, quite a lot of um, uh, cartoons have done that joke. Um, yes. Games as yes. well. Uh, the, the Witcher 3 had a, um, a mission. I played that earlier this year where you've got to go around the bank, talk to different people to get different forms, wait around for someone to be 
free. And then finally the game kind of takes pity on you and allows you an action way to get what you want. But the whole point of the quest was to trap you in a bureaucratic nightmare for a little while. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's a couple of uh, d- different references uh, made in in other like usually kids books like the the scene with the lotus eaters and things like that way the idea of being etern- like just trapped in this cycle of constant bureaucratic hoops and hoops and hoops there's an enterprise episode on that too there even they, even in Discworld, uh, kind of one of the giant threats yeah. to the existence of the disc are the auditors yes yes Be- because life is too messy they they like to clean it up when they can yes and and i think that's the thing like we we have so much that is there's there's a good thing about having records records are good good records are good emphasis on good quality Mm -hmm. records are good learning from things also good having certain requirements safety requirements great excellent the management of said information and records to the point where that becomes the central purpose rather than the actual, like, when the the form and function are not congruent. Yeah. I mean, that's I, a problem. I don't know how true this is, but I've read a lot about how one of the major problems with education in the U.S., like, at the um, elementary and secondary level, is most of the money now goes to a bloated administration rather than the You'll teachers. You'll find that this is across the board in almost every industry an issue management and admin and part of it is because there's uh you know how do you address inconsistencies in approaches well you make them all have to deal with the same kind of level of admin that's out of control um and it's not to say that admin does not have a purpose or has a role it has absolutely there's a need for as i said there's a need for structure there's a need for order there's a need for records there's a need for systems but when the systems the systems become a self-serving system. So it's all about the system and it's not about the purpose or the function. Then it's it, 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 right at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, we we're talking about this idea that the economy should serve the people. It's a tool. Yeah. Not, not an organism in itself. And actually that's the word I was looking for when you were talking yeah. about um, the admin shouldn't be serving itself. It, it becomes like yeah. an organism where it's trying to grow and survive. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and the point is, just like the economy, just like admin and systems and, and or even organizations, all these things, their purpose is to fulfill, well, they need to have some sort of common purpose that they are serving. And the purpose has to be, there has to be a point to it. And their the purpose is there needs to yeah. be a purpose. Well, no, there has to be a purpose. It can't be just, okay, well, we're going to do paperwork because if we didn't do this paperwork, then what? Like, we have this with lab safety. We have this with other things. We do need lab safety standards. Absolutely. But if you have 20 people telling three people um, to to maintain the lab safety for an inspector to come in, da da da, and you're going, yeah, but instead of having 20 people telling three people what to do, why don't you have three people telling 20 people what it is that needs to get done? And then it'll actually get done. Mm-hmm. You know, Because also, um, this is another metaphor, but often I find in these bureaucratic systems, 
uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Exactly. So, so yeah, so you'll get an email saying, oh, we've got this and that inspection coming up, and then you get that letter 20-something times. And you're going, so, guys, why? Or, I mean, and this is, I, I can only really speak from some perspectives. One of them is academic. When When you get the same email from three or four different departments... And then you get someone forward the same email to you saying for your for your information, just in case you didn't see it. I can tell you, someone with ADHD, if I see the same thing sent 20 million times, I am less likely to see it. Because I'll just look at the subject going, well, it's the same thing, isn't it? And I'll check for the first, you know, first 10 times I might check. Is there a difference in the text? No, there's no difference in the text. Same date, same person, same content, done. And then after that, my brain goes, it's going to be the same thing. There won't be anything different. And I know that's not everyone's ADHD, and I'm not trying to speak on behalf of everyone with ADHD. I'm just trying to say that you're you're less likely, because you, your brain assumes a pattern. You're more likely to see patterns in correspondence than others. Mm. Everyone can see patterns, but ADHD just tends to make you more prone to noticing patterns, which is why they'll notice that your shoelaces are untied before you do. And they might have only seen you for five seconds. It's because they've literally noticed it. One of the first things they'll notice. They might not have heard your name, but they'll notice your shoelaces around. <laughs> and again, they being very vaguely generalizing, and it's not always it's not everyone. Hmm. So it's a unique experience for everyone. But yes, yes, fun times, fun times. Yeah, it might. You know, just thinking back, it might be interesting to do a Kafka at one point. Because he does have a very dry, uh, very cynical outlook, at least from the trial I got that. And I've, I've heard mm. his other uh, big work, Metamorphosis, is kind of in that vein as well. That, that's I heard that, a, me isn't Metamorphosis basically, um, the, uh, someone commented about it being, having parallels to, was it Zoroastrianism? I don't know, but I, from what I understand, the premise is a man wakes up one day and finds out he's a cockroach. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a choice. Um, okay. Interesting. Again. That. Uh, okay. Mm. Okay. Okay. I, I'll have to get my head wrapped around that. I'd probably yes. have to look up the actual definition of Kafka-esque rather than just saying what I think it means. But the fact, yeah, the, that his name has been turned into a term we used to refer to a um, kind kind of like how we have the term quixotic after Don Quixote yeah. that that word kind of embodies the um the 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 energy of that character hmm. although yeah, although uh, uh being quixotic is a lot nicer than being Kafkaesque yes fair bit bleak bit bleak yeah. I'd rather be tilting at windmills yes I'm like <laughs> I think I'm going to look forward to not having anything bleak in my horizon of books until we once we finish Catch 22 just for a little bit Oh my um, my next my next couple picks are rather uh, more uplifting. Excellent. Less bleak. Less bleak. We don't need bleak. And, and it, well, I think I said this. No, I didn't say this before. Um, I chose. Well, I said this part. I chose Catch Twenty Two because I remembered it being very funny. What I failed to um, internalize was, oh yeah, it's also a book about war. So of course there's going to be some uh, graphic and uh, distressing material amongst the humor. Yeah. And, and it kind of the basis of the humor is also why it is so distressing, just the madness and absurdity of everything. 
Yes, very much so. It, it, I mean, it's it's um, it's been interesting, and the fact that I, I've warmed up to Yossarian, sort of, not entirely. He's still a bit of a something. There are many issues. He's a flawed person, but there's aspects to him that I can I now understand why he's a flawed person. So I've gained into understanding. Whereas my patience for Arfi is non-existence. Non-existence. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the book doesn't have an out-and-out out antagonist, although maybe Cathcart could fill that role. I think all because, of them could well, fill that role at some Cathcart stage. keeps raising the missions, which is like one of the, the drivers of the everything issues. that's going wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I mean, you know, there, there are a host of characters who kind of can slot into that role depending on uh, what's happening in the story. Arfi is definitely one of them. Mm. What is it? Yeah, it's it's just so many dominoes at the same time that I don't see is falling well at the end. That's the main thing. But but it will end like like a, a setup of dominoes. Everything will be toppled over. At least it feels that. <laughs> but yeah, so um, l- let's just briefly touch because it was a little distressing. L- l- two people lost their lives in the last chapter. <laughs> Sorry, technically three. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. For Dr. Nika. So two people officially lost their lives in the last chapter and one unofficially. Although, no, one officially lost their lives but really didn't because, remember, Yossarian made sure to get McWatt to put it – was a, it was a game of favors. Mm. So Dr. Nika's name was on the fly list so that he didn't have to fly because he was afraid of flying. Yep. Which, I mean, fair. Had he been on that plane with McWatt, well, he would have jumped out with the cadets, but... No, but remember how, how McWatt flies? What, you think Danica might have had a heart attack or something like that? I think Danica, given the way that Yossarian reacted to how McQuat flies, and Yossarian is used to being in a plane. True, And being true. shot at. Admittedly, he's traumatized by it, but he's also used to it. And the way McWatt flies scares him. Yeah, calling Danica Highstrung seems a bit of an understatement. Yes, yes. So Danica would not have, no. Danica would have either fulfilled the actions that Yossarian was considering immediately, or he would have asked for a parachute much, much earlier. Um, Or might have just carved it right there on the... Or he might have had a heart attack, so yes, really, no. Oh, dear. So, yes. Well, I, I think it's time to find out uh, what what we learn about Mrs. Danica. Yes, I want to know. And the fact that Colonel Cathcart... Colonel Cathcart was so upset by the deaths of Kit Sampson and McQuad that he raised the missions to 65. Despite the fact that everyone was... <laughs> Dobbs particularly was banking on that not happening. And and as as you pointed out... You know, the deaths of those two uh, men made him look so bad that this is the only recourse he saw he had to make himself look good again, even though it never works. No, and it's going to go worse, and it's going to keep getting worse. Chapter 31, Mrs. Danica. When Colonel Cathcart learned that Doc Danica, too, had been killed in McWatt's plane, he increased the number of missions to 70. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the fact that comes right after it's like the next paragraph oh boy 
The first person in the squadron to find out that Doc Nico was dead was Sergeant Towser, who had been informed earlier by the man in the control tower that Doc Nico's name was down as a passenger on the pilot's manifest McWatch had filed before taking off. Sergeant Towser brushed away a tear and struck Doc Nico's name from the roster of squadron personnel. With lips still quivering, he rose and trudged outside reluctantly to break the bad news to Gus and Wes discreetly avoiding any conversation with Dr. Nika himself as he moved by the flight surgeon's slight sepulchral figure roosting despondently on his stool in the late afternoon sunlight between the orderly room and the medical tent. Sergeant Towser's heart was heavy. Now he had two dead men on his hands. Mud, the dead man in Gasserian's tent who wasn't even there, and Dr. Nika, the new dead man in the squadron, who most certainly was there and gave every indication of proving a still thornier administrative problem for him. Gus and Wes listened to Sergeant Towser with looks of stoic surprise and said not a word about the bereavement to anyone else until Dr. Nika himself came in about an hour afterward to have his temperature taken for the third time that day and his blood pressure checked. The thermometer registered a half degree lower than his usual subnormal temperature of 96.8. Doc Danica was alarmed. The fixed, vacant, wooden stares of his two enlisted men were even more irritating than always. God damn it, he expostulated politely in an uncommon excess of exasperation. What's the matter with you two men anyway? It just isn't right for a person to have a low temperature all the time and walk around with a stuffed nose. Dr. Nika emitted a glum, self-pitying sniff and strolled disconsolately across the tent to help himself to some aspirin and sulfur pills and paint his own throat with argyrol. Argyrol? That's the the painting of the gums purple, I'd say. Ah. His downcast face was fragile and forlorn as a swallow's, and he rubbed the back of his arms rhythmically. Just look how cold I am right now. You're sure you're not holding anything back? You're dead, sir, one of his two enlisted men explained. Dr. Nika jerked his head up quickly with resentful distrust. What's that? You're dead, sir, repeated the other. That's probably the reason you always feel so cold. <laughs> That's right, sir. You've probably been dead all this time. We just didn't detect it. <laughs> what the hell are you both talking about? Dr. Nika cried shrilly with a surging petrifying sensation of some unrushing, unavoidable disaster. It's true, sir, said one of the enlisted men. The records show that you went up in McWatt's plane to collect some flight time. You didn't come down in a parachute, so you must have been killed in the crash. That's right, sir, said the other. You ought to be glad you've got any temperature at all. Dr. Nika's mind was reeling in confusion. Have you both gone crazy, he demanded. I'm going to report this whole insubordinate incident to Sergeant Towser. Sergeant Towser is the one who told us about it, said either Gus or Wes. The War Department's even going to notify your wife. Oh, I like that little bit. Gus or Wes, like he doesn't know who's who. Yeah, he just, well, that's possibly also why they're just like, oh, well, he's dead now. (laughs) Doc Danica yelped and ran out of the medical tent to remonstrate with Sergeant Towser, who edged away from him with repugnance and advised Doc Danica to remain out of sight as much as possible until some decision could be reached relating to the disposition of his remains. Gee, I guess he really is dead, grieved one of his enlisted men in a low, respectful voice. I'm going to miss him. He was a pretty wonderful guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he sure was, mourned the other. But I'm glad the little fuck is gone. I was getting sick and tired of taking his blood pressure all the time. 
Mrs. Danica, Doc Danica's wife, was not glad that Doc Danica was gone, and split the peaceful Staten Island night with woeful shrieks of lamentation when she learned by War Department telegram that her husband had been killed in action. Women came to comfort her, and their husbands paid condolence calls and hoped inwardly that she would soon move to another neighborhood and spare them the obligation of continuous sympathy. Wow. The poor woman was totally distraught for almost a full week. Slowly, heroically, she found the strength to contemplate a future filled with dire problems for herself and her children. Just as she was growing resigned to her loss, the postman rang with a bolt from the blue, a letter from overseas that was signed with her husband's signature and urged her frantically to disregard any bad news concerning him. Mrs. Danica was dumbfounded. The date on the letter was illegible. The handwriting throughout was shaky and hurried, but the style resembled her husband's, and the melancholy self-pitying tone was familiar, although more dreary than usual. Mrs. Danica was overjoyed and wept irrepressibly with relief and kissed the crinkled, grubby tissue of female stationery a thousand times. She dashed a grateful note off to her husband, pressing him for details, and sent a wire informing the War Department of its error. The War Department replied touchily that there had been no error, and that she was undoubtedly the victim of some sadistic and psychotic forger in her husband's squadron. The letter to her husband was returned unopened, stamped, killed in action. Mrs. Danica had been widowed cruelly again, but this time her grief was mitigated somewhat by a notification from Washington that she was sole beneficiary of her husband's $10,000 GI insurance policy, which amount was obtainable by her on demand. The realization that she and the children were not faced immediately with starvation brought a brave smile to her face and marked the turning point in her distress. The Veterans Administration informed her by mail the very next day that she would be entitled to pension benefits for the rest of her natural life because of her husband's demise and to a burial allowance for him of $250. A government check for $250 was enclosed. Gradually, inexorably, her prospects brightened. A letter arrived that same week from the Social Security Administration stating that under the provisions of the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Act of 1935, she would receive monthly support for herself and her dependent children until they reached the age of 18 and a burial allowance of $250. With these government letters as proof of death, she applied for payment on three life insurance policies Dr. Nika had carried, with a value of $50,000 each. Her claim was honored and processed swiftly. Each day brought new unexpected treasures. A key to a safe deposit box led to a fourth life insurance policy with a face value of $50,000 and to $18,000 in cash on which income tax had never been paid and need never be paid. A fraternal lodge to which he had belonged gave her a cemetery plot. A second fraternal organization of which he had been a member sent her a burial allowance of $250. His county medical association gave her a burial allowance of $250. The husbands of her closest friends began to flirt with her. Mrs. Danica was simply delighted with the way things were turning out and had her hair dyed. Her fantastic wealth just kept piling up, and she had to remind herself daily that all the hundreds of thousands of dollars she was acquiring were not worth a single penny without her husband to share this good fortune with her. 
It astonished her that so many separate organizations were willing to do so much to bury Dr. Nika, who, back in Pianosa, was having a terrible time trying to keep his head above the ground and wondered with dismal apprehension why his wife did not answer the letter he had written. He found himself ostracized in the squadron by men who cursed his memory foully for having supplied Colonel Cathcart with provocation to raise the number of combat missions. Records attesting to his death were pullulating like insect eggs and verifying each other beyond all contention. He drew no pay or PX rations and depended for life on the charity of Sergeant Towser and Milo, who both knew he was dead. Colonel Cathcart refused to see him, and Colonel Korn sent word through Major Danby that he would have Doc Danica cremated on the spot if he ever showed up at group headquarters. Major Danby confided that group was incensed with all flight surgeons because of Dr. Stubbs, the bushy-haired, baby-chinned, slovenly flight surgeon in Dunbar Squadron who was deliberately and defiantly brewing insidious dissension there by grounding all men with 60 missions on proper forms that were rejected by group indignantly, with orders restoring the confused pilots, navigators, bombardiers, and gunners to combat duty. Morale there was ebbing rapidly, and Dunbar was under surveillance. Group was glad Dr. Nika had been killed and did not intend to ask for a replacement. Not even the chaplain could bring Dr. Nika back to life under the circumstances. Alarm changed to resignation, and more and more Dr. Nika acquired the look of an alien rodent. The sacks under his eyes turned hollow and black, and he padded through the shadows fruitlessly like a ubiquitous spook. Even Captain Flume recoiled when Dr. Nika sought him out in the woods for help. Heartlessly, Gus and Wes turned him away from their medical tent without even the thermometer for comfort, and then, only then, did he realize that, to all intents and purposes, he really was dead, and that he had better do something damn fast if he ever hoped to save himself. There was nowhere else to turn but to his wife, and he scribbled an impassioned letter begging her to bring his plight to the attention of the War Department and urging her to communicate at once with his group commander, Colonel Cathcart, for assurances that, no matter what else she might have heard, it was indeed he, her husband, Doc Danica, who was pleading with her and not a corpse or some imposter. Mrs. Danica was stunned by the depth of emotion in the almost illegible appeal. She was torn with compunction and tempted to comply. But the very next letter she opened that day was from that same Colonel Cathcart, her husband's group commander, and began... Dear Mrs. Mr. Miss or Mr. and Mrs. Danica, words cannot express the deep personal grief I experienced when your husband, son, father, or brother was killed, wounded, or reported missing in action. Mrs. Danica moved with her children to Lansing, Michigan, and left no forwarding address. <sighs> well, I guess his family will be looked after. Well, financially, yes. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's Dodge. Yeah. It's so dodgy. Well, I will say she tried. Briefly, she tried. She tried, but the thing is that getting letters and being told by the War Department, no, you you don't get to send out a letter because that guy's dead. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is, if this is based on real events because it's the kind of stuff that would happen. Yeah, but, I mean, it's definitely farcical, but it doesn't seem far-fetched. No. I mean, not quite those circumstances, but in terms of being told, someone being reported dead when they're not, 
and there being no way of kind of getting them labeled as alive because there's just this unwillingness to help. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit stinky. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, he... um. <laughs> I mean, he even so he even sought out Captain Flume, who lives, you know, beyond the train tracks. So maybe that's going to be his life now. He's going to live like on the outskirts. And... <sighs> Poor guy. Like he's yeah, it's messed up. Well, I mean, Yasarian has technically a room for a dead man. True, and I do find it funny that he was a hypochondriac even long before the war. He had four separate life insurance policies. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a thing. That's been a thing always. It's the whole situation. It's just awkward, and I I, I knew something like that was going to happen. Yeah, it really, it played out almost exactly the way you said it would. Yeah, it makes sense because yeah, Cathcart's not going to go out of his way. And then you've got that silly letter by um, <laughs> what's his name? Wickham. Wickham. Is it Wickham? Wick- Whitcomb. Which oh Whitcomb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh, he's just annoying. Yeah, so annoying. There's so many really just frustrating things about this. Hmm. Like Gus and Wes are like, well, you're dead, so we don't, like, no. And they they were so tired of taking his temperature all the time. Well, the thing is also, he, it's not like he can go to the hospital. Nope. Because there's no squadron doctor. <laughs> Oh, that was really interesting. Just that little aside about the other um, the other doctor from Dunbar's group who was grounding people who'd flown 60 missions. and Yeah, and then not being allowed to do it because headquarters made the decision. Yeah, so and, and then they're blaming him for morale being low. Yeah, because it's his fault that they won't let him ground. So, so the fact that Danique is dead, like Hathcart's like, oh, good, we won't even replace him. We don't need a doctor. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's awful. Well, of course, because that would that would make Cathcart look bad. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Anyway, it's very painful. And we're not too far into the episode, so I think it's time for a second chapter. It's going to be one of those episodes. Yes. The uh, the next chapter, chapter thirty two, is called Yo Yo's Roomies. Do you recall anyone called Yo-Yo that we've met? Cesarian. Who called him Yo-Yo? Was that an or? I think so. I'm fairly sure it's Cesarian. Well, yeah, well, Cesarian is the first word of the chapter. Yeah. Cesarian was warm when the cold weather came and whale-shaped clouds blew low through a dingy slate-gray sky, almost without end, like the droning, dark, iron flocks of B-17 and B-24 bombers from the long-range air bases in Italy the day of the invasion of southern France two months earlier. Everyone in the squadron knew that Kid Sampson's skinny legs had washed up on the wet sand to lie there and rot like a purple twisted wishbone. No one would go to retrieve them, not Gus or Wes or even the men in the mortuary at the hospital. Everyone made believe that Kid Sampson's legs were not there, that they had bobbed away south forever on the tide like all of Clevenger and Orr. Now that bad weather had come, almost no one ever sneaked away alone anymore to peek through bushes like a pervert at the moldering stumps. There were no more beautiful days. There were no more easy missions. There was stinging rain and dull, chilling fog, and the men flew at week-long intervals whenever the weather cleared. At night, the wind moaned. 
The gnarled and stunted tree trunks creaked and groaned and forced the Assyrian's thoughts each morning, even before he was fully awake, back on Kid Samson's skinny legs bloating and decaying, as systematically as a ticking clock, in the icy rain and wet sand all through the blind, cold, gusty October nights. After Kid Samson's legs, he would think of pitiful, whimpering Snowden freezing to death in the rear section of the plane, holding his eternal, immutable secret concealed inside his quilted, armor-plate flak suit until a Yasarian had finished sterilizing and bandaging the wrong wound on his leg and then spilling it out suddenly all over the floor. At night, when he was trying to sleep, Yasarian would call the roll of all the men, women, and children he had ever known who were now dead. He tried to remember all the soldiers, and he resurrected images of all the elderly people he had known when a child, all the aunts, uncles, neighbors, parents, and grandparents, his own and everyone else's, and all the pathetic, deluded shopkeepers who opened their small, dusty stores at dawn and worked in them foolishly until midnight. They were all dead, too. Okay, the so this is, this is a little insight there. So he's a Syrian background, so he's might have witnessed a war. Mm. And the fact that like everyone's dead, unless it's met, met, meant metaphorical, as in he's he's unable to see them and he doesn't feel like he's alive, so they have to all be dead. Or, you know, one of those twisty things. But yeah. Uh, either it does sound plausible at this point. Yeah. The number of dead people just seemed to increase. And the Germans were still fighting. Death was irreversible, he suspected, and he began to think he was going to lose. Uh, yes, <clears throat> yes, yes. Yesarian was warm when the cold weather came because of Orr's marvelous stove, and he might have existed in his warm tent quite comfortably if not for the memory of Orr, and if not for the gang of animated roommates that came swarming inside rapaciously one day from the two full combat crews Colonel Cathcart had requisitioned and obtained in less than 48 hours, as a replacement for Kid Samson and McWatt. Yasarian emitted a long, loud, croaking gasp of protest when he trudged entirely after a mission and found them already there. There were four of them, and they were having a whale of a good time as they helped each other set up their cots. They were horsing around. The moment he saw them, Yasarian knew they were impossible. They were frisky, eager, and exuberant, and they had all been friends in the States. They were plainly unthinkable. They were noisy, overconfident, and beheaded kids of 21. They had gone to college and were engaged to pretty, clean girls whose pictures were already standing on the rough cement mantelpiece of Ora's fireplace. They had ridden in speedboats and played tennis. They had been horseback riding. One had once been to bed with an older woman. They knew the same people in different parts of the country and had gone to school with each other's cousins. They had listened to the World Series and really cared who won football games. They were obtuse. Their morale was good. They were glad that the war had lasted long enough for them to find out what combat was really like. They were halfway through unpacking when Yasarian threw them out. They were plainly out of the question, Yasarian explained adamantly to Sergeant Towser, whose sallow equine face was despondent as he informed Yasarian that the new officers would have to be admitted. Sergeant Towser was not permitted to requisition another six-man tent from group while Yasarian was living in one alone. I'm not living in this one alone, Yasarian said with a sulk. I've got a dead man in here with me. His name is Mud. 
Please, sir, begged Sergeant Towser, sighing warily with a sidelong glance at the four baffled new officers listening in mystified silence just outside the entrance. Mud was killed on the mission to Orvieto. You know that. He was flying right beside you. Then why don't you move his things out? Because he never even got here. Captain, please don't bring that up again. You can move. <laughs> Sorry, this whole thing. It's like, and the, the fact that, just, you know that sentence? His name is Mud. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> you can move in with Lieutenant Nately if you like. I'll even send some men from the orderly room to transfer your belongings. But to abandon Orr's tent would be to abandon Orr, who would have been spurned and humiliated clannishly by these four simple-minded officers waiting to move in. It did not seem just that these boisterous, immature young men should show up after all the work was done and be allowed to take possession of the most desirable tent on the island. But that was the law, Sergeant Towser explained, and all Yasarian could do was glare at them in baleful apology as he made room for them and volunteer helpful penitent hints as they moved inside his privacy and made themselves at home. They were the most depressing group of people Yasarian had ever been with. They were always in high spirits. They laughed at everything. They called him Yo-Yo jocularly and came in tipsy late at night and woke him up with their clumsy, bumping, giggling efforts to be quiet, then bombarded him with asinine shouts of hilarious good fellowship when he sat up cursing to complain. He wanted to massacre them each time they did. They reminded him of Donald Duck's nephews. They were afraid of the Assyrian and persecuted him incessantly with nagging generosity and with their exasperating insistence on doing small favors for him. They were reckless, puerile, congenial, naive, presumptuous, deferential and rambunctious. They were dumb. They had no complaints. They admired Colonel Cathcart, and they found Colonel Corn witty. Well, that's the worst thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> they were afraid of Yasarian, but they were not the least bit afraid of Colonel Cathcart's 70 missions. They were four clean-cut kids who were having lots of fun, and they were driving Yasarian nuts. He could not make them understand that he was a crotchety old fogey of 28, that he belonged to another generation, another era, another world, that having a good time bored him and was not worth the effort, and that they bored him too. He could not make them shut up. They were worse than women. They had not brains enough to be introverted and repressed. Cronies of theirs in other squadrons began dropping in unashamedly and using the tent as a hangout. There was often not enough room for him. Worst of all, he could no longer bring Nurse Duckett there to lie down with her. And now that foul weather had come, he had no place else. This was a calamity he had not foreseen, and he wanted to bust his roommates' heads open with his fists, or pick them up each in turn by the seats of their pants and the scruffs of their necks, and pitch them out once and for all into the dank, rubbery, perennial weeds growing between his rusty soup can urinal with nail holes in the bottom, and the naughty pine squadron latrine that stood like a beach locker not far away. Instead of busting their heads open, he tramped in his galoshes and black raincoat through the drizzling darkness to invite Chief White Halfout to move in with him too, and drive the fastidious clean living bastards out with his threats and swinish habits. But Chief White Halfout felt cold and was already making plans to move up into the hospital to die of pneumonia. Instinct told Chief White Halfout it was almost time. His chest ached, and he coughed chronically. Whiskey no longer warmed him. 
Most damning of all, Captain Flume had moved back into his trailer. Here was an omen of unmistakable meaning. He had to move back, Yasarian argued in a vain effort to cheer up the glum, barrel-chested Indian, whose well-knit, sorrel-red face had generated rapidly into a dilapidated, calcareous gray. He'd die of exposure if he tried to live in the woods in this weather. No, that wouldn't drive the yellow belly back, Chief White Halfo disagreed obstinately. He tapped his forehead with cryptic insight. No, siree, he knows something. He knows it's time for me to die pneumonia. That's what he knows. And that's how I know it's time. What does Doc Danica say? I'm not allowed to say anything, Doc Danica said sorrowfully from his seat on his stool in the shadows of a corner, his smooth, tapered, diminutive face turtle green in the flickering candlelight. Everything smelled of mildew. The bulb in the tent had blown out several days before, and neither of the two men had been able to muster in the initiative to replace it. I'm not allowed to practice medicine anymore, Dr. Nika added. He's dead, Chief White half gloated with a hoarse laugh entangled in phlegm. That's really funny. I don't even draw my pay anymore. That's really funny, Chief White half repeated. All this time he's been insulting my liver, and look what happened to him. He's dead, killed by his own greed. That's not what killed me, Dr. Nika observed in a voice that was calm and flat. There's nothing wrong with greed. It's all that lousy Dr. Stubbs's fault. Getting Colonel Cathcart and Colonel Korn stirred up against flight surgeons. He's going to give the medical profession a bad name by standing up for principle. If he's not careful, he'll be blackballed by his state medical association and kept out of the hospitals. Yasarian watched Chief White Half-Oat pour whiskey carefully into three empty shampoo bottles and stored them away in the musette bag he was packing. Can't you stop by my tent on your way up to the hospital and punch one of them in the nose for me? He speculated aloud. I've got four of them, and they're going to crowd me out of my tent altogether. You know, something like that once happened to my whole tribe, Chief White Halfout remarked in jolly appreciation, sitting back on his cot to chuckle. Why don't you get Captain Black to kick those kids out? Captain Black likes to kick people out. Yasarian grimaced sourly at the mere mention of Captain Black, who was already bullying the new flyers each time they stepped into his intelligence tent for maps or information. Yasarian's attitude towards his roommates turned merciful and protective at the mere recollection of Captain Black. It was not their fault that they were young and cheerful, he reminded himself as he carried the swinging beam of his flashlight back through the darkness. He wished that he could be young and cheerful too. And it wasn't their fault that they were courageous, confident, and carefree. He would just have to be patient with them until one or two were killed and the rest wounded, and then they would all turn out okay. Wow. <laughs> He vowed to be more tolerant and benevolent, but when he ducked inside his tent with his friendlier attitude, a great blaze was roaring in the fireplace, and he gasped in horrified amazement. Aura's beautiful birch logs were going up in smoke. His roommates had set fire to them. He gaped at the four insensitive, overheated faces and wanted to shout curses at them. He wanted to bang their heads together as they greeted him with loud convivial cries and invited him generously to pull up a chair and eat their chestnuts and roasted potatoes. What could he do with them? And the very next morning, they got rid of the dead man in his tent. Just like that, they whisked him away. They carried his cot and all his belongings right out into the bushes and simply dumped them there. And then they strode back, slapping their hands briskly at a job well done. Yasarian was stunned by their overbearing vigor and zeal, by their practical, direct efficiency. 
In a matter of moments, they had disposed energetically of a problem with which Yesarian and Sergeant Towser had been grappling unsuccessfully for months. Yesarian was alarmed. They might get rid of him just as quickly, he feared, and ran to Hungry Joe and fled with him to Rome the next day before Natalie's finally got a good night's sleep and woke up in love. Well, that's obviously a link to the next um, chapter, which is titled Natalie's Yes. Yes, it is. Interesting. Hmm. Two short chapters. So it turns out no one called Yesarian Yo-Yo before this chapter. No, they, no. so it was these guys that are calling Yesarian Yo-Yo. But I, I swear someone called him yeah, Yo-Yo. It feels familiar, but you know, this Time book line. has jumped around, so. Yeah. Poor Dr. Nika, poor Yesarian. Poor uh, Chief White Half- uh, Hoffer. I think, yeah. He's sick. He feels it's time. Um, Cap- yeah, it's interesting that Captain Black just immediately makes his hair and go, "Man, yeah, they're gonna have to go through all that as well." Yeah, yeah, it makes him empathetic to them. They can't help being young and carefree, and one or two will die, and the others will be wounded, and then it'll be fine. He's yeah. going, "Wow, <laughs> that's that's a bit dark." Not, not, nothing like the horrors of war to grind the um, optimism out of a young man. Well, it's it's also, I mean, this is a thing I'm sure that in military situations is an issue when you've got people who come in who are green, who haven't actually experienced combat. Yeah. Their, their overconfidence is an issue. The f- weird thing is that he's like, war is beautiful birch logs were going up in smoke. Well, wouldn't you be using the birch logs? I think Yasserian wasn't because they were like a By memento of ore. Yeah. And so he was just using wood, but he wasn't touching the ones that ore had actually chopped for him. Mm. Which, very sweet. Very, very, yeah. um, uh, what's it called? Very sentimental, but look. Mm. And and the other reason that Chief Whitehalfout knows that it's time, because Captain Flume came back. Exactly. So Flume he- and... He knows that he's going to die of pneumonia because Flume's come back and Flume must know that he's going to die of pneumonia. So he's made up his mind that it's time for him to die of pneumonia. What? Yeah, Flume must think that, you know, a man as sick as him isn't going to cut cut his throat while he sleeps. Yeah. Yeah. He's no longer afraid of him. Meanwhile, yeah. Dr. Nika's just hanging out in his tent, I guess. Well, yeah. Where, where can he go? And I love how he's like, I blame the other uh, doctor for doing his job. <laughs> if he keeps on doing his job, he may get blackballed by the entire medical association. I wish I wasn't so darkly going well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what, yes. What's the saying? No good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. It's, it's actually, unfortunately, very true in some spaces. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm curious to see. Notice the four kids don't they don't even get named. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe Yesarian's hope for them turns out to be true. Yeah. Well, or or they're just it's not even it's not important enough. Well, it could also be the thing where yeah, I mean we have jumped around a lot, but Yesarian is still our main character. So from his point oh. of view. You know what, though? When's Milo done the attack? Ah, they could be victims of that. Yeah. Or maybe even he they're the people he corrals to do the attack. Possible. Possible. 
Yeah. But well, that was an interesting aside, too, that Sergeant Tazer and Milo are feeding Doc Danica. Because they're feeling bad for him. Yeah. And with Milo, it's got to be weird. Like, what is he getting Dr. Nick to do? Like, there's no way he's getting it for free. Yeah. Yeah. That was my thought as well. There's no way he's being altruistic. There's got to be an angle. Yeah. Like, Towser, maybe? I think Towser's doing it just because he feels bad about it. Yeah. That is another bureaucratic thing. And I like how it's just like... The whole thing. Look, I've got a. I've, I'm not alone in my tent. In my six man tent, there's another guy. He's he's the dead man. He's like, don't start that again. He's he he died. It's like, but then why is the stuff still still there? Because he never get, got here. Please don't bring that up. <laughs> and and I like how the 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 new guys just like. So there's another guy's stuff in the tent, and it doesn't need to be there. Let's just chuck it. And Yasserian is like, just like that. But he's like, actually, oh no, can they get rid of me that easily? But that's the thing. Yasserian's problem is that he just doesn't act. Mm. He's not, he's not yeah. a protagonist in his own life. He's passive. You know, as, as much as he says things that are stirring and occasionally gets into fisticuffs and whatever, he hasn't done anything. He has thoughts of, mm-hmm. you know, hurting Arfi or others, but he doesn't act on it. Yeah. Like even even strangling McWatt, he he just he threatened it, but he never was going to do it. So actually, that's the thing. Dobbs wanted his just blessing, as it were, to go kill Cathcart, and he couldn't give it. He couldn't do that. His his inertia or his his lack of action is the problem. And you know, I think maybe that's why Dobbs was playing with him at at the end, because when Yasserian came to Dobbs in the back of Dobbs's mind, he's like, "Yeah, but you don't really mean it." Yeah. But then you've also got this situation where when Yusarian does act, things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts also with that whole situation with Snowden. I was think because he was, remember, he fault? wasn't meant to be, no, he wasn't meant to be on that plane. He'd asked not to be on the plane with Dobbs. Hmm. I don't know if that was before or after, but. The, the whole situation with Snowden and Dobbs. And, no, Yasserian knew that Dobbs wasn't quite right. Mm. And he didn't say anything or do anything about it. Um, and I think that that's probably a factor. and That's why there was all that wackiness that happened with that flight. Right. Um, I think he also blames himself for Clevenger. I think he blames himself for a lot of the deaths. Yeah. Definitely with Orr as well. Definitely with Orr, that he didn't... Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things that, that, that are going on. But, yeah, I, I mean, those, those were two very short chapters, but um, sad ones. They're chunky. Like, they have content in them that is a little bit... Like, it's it's very much the dealing with bureaucracy and the frustration with, with like... Did you see? He got... Okay, so Colonel Cathcart got... Was it two or three full squadrons? Not squadrons. Th- uh, three full flight platoons? platoons? Mm, flight to replace groups? two men. To replace uh, three men. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, he's, so, he, no, he's not replacing Danica. Oh, yeah. He's not replacing Danica. So he's, he's re- to replace McWatt and uh, Kid Samson, he's replaced them with two full flight decks. So that's, you know, pilot, navigator, da, da. Yeah. I would hope that, that they'd put Ysera in with one of the new decks because 
that would be a very bad idea to leave him with Dobbs. Well, that was that was the other thing. The um, the, the new kids don't seem to blanch at the idea of seventy missions. But that's because they don't understand what seventy missions is. Yeah. And also, Yusera is commenting there were no more milk runs. There's no more easy missions. Yeah. So they're at the tail end at the pointy end of this this whole situation and i mean yeah you know with 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 the previous episode's chapter cuz we're we're definitely we're in the last quarter of the book now uh we passed 75% reading these chapters it really feels we are spiraling down to a climax now yeah we are circling the drain so to speak mm-hmm. yeah, um, Th- yeah things it's... things do not look like they are going to end up well the fact that dumbbar is being observed Mm. that's not great uh and i bet you also because dunbar might have been the reason why the doctor grounded the platoons mm. the men and i wonder if because dunbar would have been able to convince the doctor easily well didn't yasarian go and see that doctor yeah and the doctor was pissed at this whole situation mm. i mean dunbar might I think him and Dunbar are on the same page, but it seems like he, maybe they had some discussions, but it seems like this doctor is going by his own sense of right and wrong. Well, no, the doctor's actually paying attention, going, this is dangerous when this is not going to work out. Mm. And the whole, I think maybe the situation with Kid Samson was the, the last straw that broke the camel's back because they were at 60 missions and then they were up to 65 and 70 within within like a day. Within two paragraphs. <laughs> Within two paragraphs. So that would have been it. The doctor going, no, this is ridiculous nonsense. That's the stop. I, as said, I want to know what Dobbs is going to say. Hmm. Well, we, you know, just because the next chapter is talking about the apple of Nately's affection, uh, doesn't mean that we won't get divergences to other characters. But um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if Dobbs comes back into the picture. Yeah, it'll be interesting. How much do you want to bet that lady? She's because talking about her falling in love. I bet I know she's not falling in love with Nately. What if it's like Arfie or Captain Black? No, I think she might fall in love with Nately. It would make sense. Nately or any of them. If it was Captain Black, that would be terrible. But I think the sentence here is what's sticking to me. The day before Nately's finally got a good night's sleep and woke up in love. Whoever they are, they let her sleep. They didn't. There was there, there was sleep. It's it's interesting that there's that. That's the emphasis. Mm. A good night's sleep is interesting mm. um, to me, because I mean, imagine getting paid just to sleep. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, you know that that um that happened yesterday. Where um, so where I'm working now, there's an office dog an office Labrador. And uh, when I went to go um, get some supplies, I actually, it was printouts uh, in the main room. And right there below the printer was the dog. And it looked up at me. I'm like, oh, fine, I'll give you a pet. Then it rolled over. And a lady who was there was like, uh, oh, you can't stop. And I said, oh, if you would pay me just to pet the dog, I'd I'd jump at that in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, he's so fluffy. I'm just gonna close the thing that just decided to open up. There. He's he's a big, big friendly slobber. Well, not slobbery, but you know that kind of yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. personality. Black Labrador. Ah, yeah. always cute. Tail just going mile a minute. Puppy. Hmm. But yes, yes. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed that. As usual, the music at the top of the podcast is Soap Runs by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. At the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me at Rue McMoo and our podcast at SMBSLT podcast. That's on Twitter, on Facebook, but it's not crashing. And on uh, Gmail, if you add an at gmail.com to the end. Mm, please, we'd, we'd love to hear your feedback, how you're enjoying the podcast, how you're enjoying the book. If you have any theories or thoughts, we'd love to hear them. If you have suggestions for uh, what we should be reading next, we will take mm. them under consideration. Exactly. It's never set in stone with me because I'm quite flexible. My thoughts. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, until next time, please stay safe, enjoy your reading, and we'll see you next time.